Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. We turn this week to a topic that some of you have asked about in the past. Rooftop solar has been growing exponentially in markets around the world. With that growth uh, comes a number of natural questions like, you know, what's the role that it can play in helping us get to net zero or how much does it cost? Today, we'll dig into those questions and others with renewable energy expert and friend of the podcast, Thomas Mills. Thomas, thanks again for making the time to join us on the show. Thanks for having me back, Jason. And uh, good to talk to you, Todd. It's been a while. Yeah, man, I'm stoked. This is uh, the first three-way interview we've done on the show. And I've been waiting for one of these, mainly for the fact that I've left all the work to you two, and I'm just going to do my best to make fun of you and try to trip you all up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're breaking new ground. This is this has been what I imagined my original role in this podcast to be, and I and I'm finally glad that we've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Thomas, last time we talked was the podcast we did before the Global Climate Summit COP26. And, you know, I think even the months since then, we're still waiting for countries to put forth some uh, real climate targets, uh, Australia being one. So, you know, wanted to ask you, are you, are you having any progress with, uh, with Mr. Morrison, bringing him over from the dark side? Uh, yes, Scotty from marketing. Well, uh, he's, he's managed to do a, a total 180 degree backflip on his rhetoric surrounding electric vehicles. Um, but... Really, when you dig into it, it's just a little bit of greenwashing and no real substance. But yeah, unfortunately, um, Australia has not made their targets any more aggressive than they were before. Um, we went over there and we basically released a whole heap of hot air. So um, I think what it's <laughs> going to come down to is the states and, and individuals in Australia you know, picking up the tab and, and providing the leadership on the issue because it's definitely not coming from the man at the top. You know, that doesn't sound uh, drastically different from the U.S. You know, I, as you know, we've been waiting here for federal climate action for, you know, multiple decades. And thankfully, we've got states and municipalities that have been trying to pick up the slack. Well, let's pivot from there to this week's Reason for Hope. The Dutch branch of the international nonprofit Friends of the Earth won a landmark case back in 2021 against Shell that requires them to cut their emissions 45% over the next 10 years. Well, now they've set their sights on 30 multinational companies that have legal bases in the Netherlands and sent them a letter calling on them to cut their emissions by the same amount by 2030 and to produce plans that show how they're going to get there. They're giving these companies till mid-April to produce these plans with the implication that, you know, if they don't, that Friends of the Earth is willing to mount the same sort of legal challenge they, they did against Shell. And, you know, while legal battles take time, it's exciting to see a nonprofit that's taking these big conglomerates to, to task over the kind of climate pledges they should already have in place. And I think just as importantly, hopefully it gets the ball rolling elsewhere in the world where more of these lawsuits drive other companies to do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, I I hate to think it all has to be solved in the courts, but if that proves to be the vehicle that gets us there, then so be it. You know, I think at this point, 
it needs to be an all of the above solution. So we need to be working on legislation and and at the same time, you know, pressing these companies that, that don't want to step up to the plate in the legal system. Before we hammer Thomas with a, a lot of hard questions on solar, I thought it might be good to give some, you know, high level context on the rooftop solar market. So, you know, folks remember we had a, an episode uh, early in the podcast focused on, you know, utility scale solar. You know, this, when we're talking about rooftop, are strictly panels that are, you know, as would indicate, mounted to the roof of a home or of a business. And within the US, the total install capacity as of 2021 is up to now 22 gigawatts, which probably doesn't mean a lot to people, but translates to about 4.2 million homes, which is pretty exciting. In 2021 alone, installations exceeded uh, one gigawatt or about 190,000 homes. So if you look back over the past 10 years, you know, rooftop solar in the U.S. has really started to grow quickly. By 2030, it's estimated that about 13.5% of all U.S. homes will have solar. Thomas, what's the uh, what's the situation like in Australia today? I think things are still improving, um, but we've definitely got the jump on you guys. Um, we're looking at about 30% penetration. Uh, 30% of homes in Australia have solar panels installed, but... A lot of that was uh, also early days with smaller systems, um, but now like we're typically seeing six to eight kilowatt type systems going up on houses, which really starts making a difference. So that's impressive, Thomas. So I guess for context, when we're talking, you know, two kilowatts or six or eight, what does an average home need to sort of offset their, their energy costs over the course of a year? It's a little difficult actually, because it depends a bit on, on what the feed-in tariff situation is, you know whether you're getting paid the wholesale price for feed-in is is now more common in Australia, or you're getting paid a full net metered rate where you're getting paid the same amount that you're paying for electricity you draw down from the grid. Um, so, look, it varies greatly, but in my situation, I have 12.8 kilowatts of solar panels on my house. In in reality, the vast majority of that, 90% of it is exported right now. It's my little piece that I do for the planet. And we appreciate that. I mean, neither Todd or I have rooftop solar, so we're counting on you to offset our energy. <laughs> yeah, somebody's got to do it. But but on a typical house these days, you're going to see there is somewhere around that six to eight kilowatt mark. It's is not uncommon, and especially like if you're going to you know buy an electric car in the future or something like that, then it probably pays to put in a little bit more than you expect that you'll be using because the average electric car is going to push up household electricity consumption by maybe thirty percent or more. That's a great point. So it sounds like at the end of the day, when we're talking about you know trying to offset our energy use as individual homeowners, it really does vary. They're obviously you know, pretty sophisticated tools these days. And so as people look at potentially adding solar, you have that opportunity to take into account, you know, all the variables and to be able to, you know, look at potentially your future usage and, you know, whether you plan to buy an electric car and, and, and then size your system accordingly. So when it comes to costs, I thought we'd also just provide a high level overview when we're talking about, you know, rooftop solar versus commercial and utility scale, you know, utility scale solar is still substantially cheaper. You know, commercial and industrial is a little bit cheaper than residential. But I think, 
you know, as we'll get into here in this discussion, they each have their, their role to play. You know, obviously residential has the benefit of taking advantage of a, you know, space that isn't being used otherwise. And so even though there are those cost differences and the fact that residential does cost more, there, there are benefits kind of above and beyond that, Thomas, I hope you can educate us on. Yeah. So I, I think one of the other things is that you don't have to go and build a whole bunch of additional infrastructure. You're not having to build transmission lines out to the middle of the desert to you know, connect these solar systems. As you mentioned, Jason, you, you, you're not taking up land that would, would otherwise have been you know, natural environment or farmland or what have you. And also the, the transmission losses, because you're generating at the point of consumption um, you don't have to go you know, move this electricity hundreds of miles. So you've got you know, less losses associated with the production. In other words, people that, that have you know, heard of like the grid here in the US and kind of the inefficiencies, you really are able to bypass all that when you have you know, a solar panel right on your roof. Yeah, basically, because everything stays on the, on the distribution network, assuming that you're not then taking that power and sending it somewhere else to be stored in pumped hydro or what have you. But as batteries and electric vehicles become more commonplace, you know, that is going to keep that energy generation local because it's going to go straight into those electric vehicles or straight into that battery storage. And with round-trip efficiencies on electric vehicles and battery storage around 90%, you know, it's really quite an efficient way of storing that electricity for use later in the day or on a cloudy day a few days later. So why don't I tee you up on a question I think we're kind of leading into here, which is, you know, what role can rooftop solar play in kind of helping us reach, you know, net zero fossil fuels in, in the power sector? I think undoubtedly a, a significant role. We do get to the situation where we start to run into limitations, and we're seeing that already in Australia. Where, you know, just in the last week, watching the wholesale power price, I've seen it go negative in the southern states quite a num- number of times, and that's driven by the fact that the solar production now in Australia in certain regions is exceeding the electricity demand in the middle of the day, and. Really, we need to find a workaround for that. And the most logical workaround is increasing the electric vehicle penetration and then putting those vehicles on smart charging programs where they monitor the live power price and they only draw electricity off the grid when the price goes to zero or negative. Um, so that would be phase one of it. Phase two is then putting that power back into the grid, but that's going to require different charging systems than we have today and cooperation from the electric vehicle manufacturers. Yes, Elon, that's you. Um, So that we can make sure that these vehicles are capable of bi-directional charging. Yeah. We hope Elon will step up to the plate on that. You know, he's, he's definitely been leading the way and helping us get electric vehicles out there. And, you know, if he's committed to, uh, to them having the the true positive impact that they can, you know, we'll get some bi-directional charging going on. Yeah, I, look, I understand his limitations in the early days. I mean, back when they were literally taking a lithium cell out of a laptop computer and jamming an electric car, there were concerns around longevity of those cells and putting additional load on them because you were using the vehicle not just for travel but also for grid support. But that that's all changing as the cycle life of the cells becomes a non-issue, especially as the world moves towards lithium-ion phosphate technology 
which has you know maybe three times the cycle life of a typical nickel manganese cobalt cell that we saw in early electric vehicles. You know, with answers like that, Mills, I think probably taken away from you know the credibility of my technical expertise, but <laughs> I do think <laughs> no, I, I I do think though the the point is a good one, right? That you know the batteries have gotten better, so they can handle more charging cycles, right? And and now you've got manufacturers like Ford and others that are saying, hey, if you want to take your your truck out there and use the battery to do other things or to power your home when the power's out, that creates that flexibility. So it sounds like if we think about, you know, rooftop solar and electric vehicles, they're really a great pair because one is your generating technology, one is your storage technology. And, you know, as folks know, the sun doesn't always shine, right? The wind doesn't always blow. And so this gives us a great tool to be able to to create that smarter grid that so many of us have heard about. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to keep in mind that battery storage in electric vehicles is is really cheap. It's really cheap. I mean, you go and buy the equivalent, you know, Tesla Powerwalls or what have you. You When, when you go and buy a, a Tesla Model 3, you basically get 60 or 70 kilowatts of batteries and they throw a car in for free. I think that, you know, if we keep that in mind, and I'm, I'm serious, if you work it out on a dollars per kilowatt kilowatt hour of storage basis, it's basically you buy some batteries and you get a car for free. But what, once you, you stop and look at the actual storage capacity of like a Tesla Powerwall, which is what, you know, 13, 14 kilowatt hours versus, you know, the Tesla, you know, Model 3 long range like yours, which is what, 75 kilowatt hours of storage. Like that's massive. That's enough to run the average house for four days straight. Um, So it provides this awesome buffer ability that we should be thinking about utilizing so that we can get high rates of penetration of solar under the grid. I mean, without it, we're kind of doomed, right? Because we, we, we make all this electricity when we're not really using it. We're not at home, you know, cooking our dinner or, you know, running the washing machine or whatever it might be. Mind you, you should be running your washing machine on a timer so that it is running when it should be. Um, but there, there are, <laughs> there's this huge variation in demand on the grid. We, we've all been kind of brainwashed, I think, by the large power producers that we need this baseload power baseload is finished it's over like it's it's a thing of the past what we need is responsive power sources that can deliver electricity when we need it and that's going to be a combination of you know solar wind and battery storage yeah i mean it really gets at least an energy geek like me pretty excited to hear you talk about it in that in that respect and uh we should clarify for listeners that uh, you you don't own a tesla nor do you um get any financial benefit for for plugging tesla but <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless it is uh it is exciting to think about how these you know batteries and and uh, solar panels can potentially work together i'm i'm gonna have to do a roof on my house well at some point you know in the near future and obviously be a good time to to get solar panels i mean you obviously have a lot of experience in this thomas and in installing these systems i was just kind of hopeful that you could describe kind of what you have and, you know, the things to think about when getting systems installed and also thinking about storage at home, because I know that that's a big topic here. And it sounds like from what you've already said that, you know, the electric cars actually could could kind of provide that storage solution anyway, without having to, to do storage in your house. 
Yeah, look, I, I think starting with the roof part of it is pr probably an important piece. The, the roof on my house is a, is a steel roof. And um, the first thing I did was actually go back and, and repaint it um, because once you put these solar panels on, it's not easy accessing things. Um, and they're going to be there for a number of decades. You know, I started off with that. The, the next thing I did was look into, well, what types of equipment am I going to be needing? I knew that you know, in Australia, our grid is nothing short of an environmental disaster. We make almost one kilogram of CO2 emissions or 0.8 kilograms of CO2 emissions for every kilowatt hour consumed. So frankly, like it was um, in my best interest or in the world's best interest that I put as many kilowatt hours as possible back into the grid. Um, we have the benefit in Tasmania that we have a large hydroelectric system. So that acts as the battery. And that is the reason why I didn't do a battery at the same time, because basically we just need to turn a tap on during those peaking periods. But you know, for the rest of the time, we can be making that electricity using solar and saving that water for when we need it. So I ended up with uh, some SunPower P3 series panels. They make some of the best quality panels in the world. They're one of the few manufacturers that back their panels with a full 25-year product warranty. Uh, also, I paired them with SMA inverters. I've got two five-kilowatt single-phase inverters. SMA are a, a German company that make really high-quality inverters. And the thing for me was like not leaving a, a waste stream for future generations. And that's why I believe in paying that you know little bit extra. Um, and we're talking maybe... 10% extra on the system cost because the labor doesn't change whether you buy cheap stuff or good stuff, but buying something that's going to last for, well, you know, it's warranted for 25 years. It, it'll still be ticking away in 40 years time. So I think that description definitely, definitely helps. And now Todd has everything he needs to do to go put solar on his roof. And I don't think there's any excuses why you can't start that tomorrow, really. Well, as long as you're willing to get up on a ladder, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'll just uh, go grab my uh, ladder and safety harness and I'll be over. So for those who aren't taking copious amount of notes while they're listening to this podcast, wanted to highlight that there are a number of great sites out there that make the whole process of navigating the purchase and installation of solar much easier. One of the ones we'd like to recommend for those here in the U.S. is energysage.com. It's both an educational resource as well as a quote tool where you can plug in your zip code and pull up quotes from houses in your, your neighborhood that have put solar on and see things like the, the payback period, how they financed it, what kind of energy savings you get. So check that out. We'll have a link to it on our website as well. With that in mind, Thomas, in addition to the size of the system that we talked about, you know, assessing for whether you're going to be purchasing an electric car and, you know, the importance of having quality panels, what are sort of the other variables that folks need to consider when they're thinking about rooftop solar installation? Yeah, look, apart from the roof type, as we discussed earlier, I, I think, you know, making sure you've got a suitable layout is probably important and you know, adequate roof space. So, you know, normally we always think, well, in Australia, north-facing roof, in the US, south-facing roof. But there's a lot actually to be said for having um, solar panels on east and west faces as well, um, mainly because 
that's when we're typically at home, right? First thing in the morning, late in the afternoon, utilizing that electricity. And if you look at it from a, a total annual energy yield, you know, a typical pitched north-facing roof might produce about 15% more than an east and west-facing setup. So it's, it's, it's not all lost. It does mean that you, you, know, you may be, well, your winter performance might be quite as good because that's when, in your case, you, you really want to have those panels facing towards the south. But you, you might have a big air conditioning load in the, in the summer, and that's where a west-facing setup is going to be really beneficial. So don't, don't stress it too much if you haven't got you know, perfect you know, sun-facing roof. It's not the end of the world. The other thing is that um, you know, pitch levels on roof, if the roof gets too flat, you've got the risk of dirt and debris build up on the panels, and that will mean that you're probably going to have to clean them you know, a couple of times a year. Once you start getting over about that 15-degree mark, the, the panel should, in most climates, end up self-cleaning and you shouldn't have to worry too much about it. There will always be a little bit of debris on them, but you know it'll be a couple of percent impact on the production. And then I assume as well, you know, we've been talking about the differences between Australia and the US, you know, what kind of state and federal level incentives are in place will, you know, have a big impact. Yes. And also like your projected energy use. I I think it's really important to keep in mind that like as we all move to electric vehicles, you're not buying that energy from a petrol station anymore. And in in Tasmania, 95% of EV charging is done at people's homes. So, you know, there's that that you want to keep in mind that that could have, you know, relatively large impact on your your total consumption. Because solar panels, you know, they're, they're not getting massively cheaper anymore. They've had a big improvement in, in cost over the last 10, 15 years. So, so don't hesitate if you want to put on more than less, I guess is what I'm saying, because you probably won't regret it. I haven't heard anybody yet say, I wish I put less solar panels on my roof. Hmm. <laughs> That's good to know. So in summary, Thomas, when if folks are interested in going down this path of, of rooftop solar, it sounds like the main variables that are kind of going to determine how economical it's going to be, how quickly it would pay off are, are, you know, the incentives that are present for them, their roof angle to some degree, their, you know, geographic location, right? I mean, folks in Seattle are going to have a little more of a challenge paying them off than folks in uh, Phoenix. (laughs) And then cost of energy, and am I forgetting anything or is that? Yeah, probably your, your utilization profile. So, you know, if, if you can time your utilization in the house to match the solar output, then you're going to dramatically improve the payback period on the solar system you install. So I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion that the fact that I'm a, a late adopter of technology is going to make this difficult, but I'm sure there are great you know, apps and tools out there to help with that. But the idea being, if your you know, solar panels are producing maximum at the middle of the day, then you want to be having all your you know, your car charge, your appliances run at the, in that same time frame. Yeah, preferably because household battery storage is still pretty damn expensive. That's why I, I tell people, make sure your setup is battery ready. And most inverters these days play well with um, most of the batteries on the market. But just make sure you ask that question of your installer, you know, will my setup be battery ready and what steps would I have to do to, to make that happen? The other thing you might want to do is just think about 
running the circuits for a battery um, or for an EV charger as I did at the time that you put the solar system in because it just limits a number of times you've got to access the back of the electrical panel and run those those wires. So as we kind of transition from, you know, me as as consumer wanting to, you know, put put panels on my on my roof for, you know, financial reasons or, you know, because I want to help the environment, what barriers there are to, you know, the United States kind of scaling up to get solar in the residential areas kind of like at the levels that we see there in Australia. Yeah, so I think the limitations that we're running into in Australia where we have too much generation now in the middle of day, middle of the day in some regions um, is is a long way off for most of the US. You still have the ability to put quite a bit more mm. solar onto the grid. And so the bigger limitations are going to be how do you get to that level of uptake? And in Australia, we've had a program called the Small Technology Certificate Program, which for every time you go and buy electricity from the grid, you pay about one cent per kilowatt hour into this pot of money that you then get to draw down on when you buy a solar system. And it typically covers about one third of the total install cost. So um, having some type of financial mechanism that reduces the cost burden to the homeowner or to the person installing the system, I think is really key. So it kind of sounds like we're we're behind quite a bit. We're pretty early days on having where we have to face a problem where we're putting too much power on the grid and the the power companies are getting, you know, kind of scratchy about it. And maybe this kind of goes back to our smart grid episode that we did where we're going to have to improve that grid to be able to handle this problem of of having too much power with with storage and being able to kind of, you know, have power work in both ways. Yeah. So in Australia, they're they're looking at uh, basically connecting these uh, inverters through the internet so that they can clip the power output in the middle of the day. But that's not my preference because that's a kilowatt hour of renewable energy that is otherwise lost. Um, I think more importantly, when we start reaching those limitations of grid capacity, we need to be thinking about electric vehicles, bidirectional charging, um, and creating the incentives to accelerate the uptake of uh, those storage solutions. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, that that's also going to have to go hand in hand with uh, inductive charge pads for electric vehicles, just like you do with your cell phone today. We need to be you know, rolling out these inductive charge pads that are under development right now. Uh, they're very close to commercialization. I think there one, will be one vehicle this year rolled out with inductive charge pads. But the majority of people don't really care about like the peaks and troughs in the grid. That's for the geeks to worry about. So having a system where they get financially rewarded, but it's seamless for them. They don't have to worry about plugging their car in when they get to work. They just drive to work, they park their car over the top of an inductive charge pad, and it monitors the grid price, and it puts electricity into that vehicle when there's excess solar on the grid. So it doesn't matter whether you're at home or at work, wherever you are, whenever your vehicle's parked and it's plugged in, i.e. you know, over the top of one of these inductive charge pads, it smarts along with the grid smarts organizes a system that you know results in the grid operating at a level that is sustainable. I know residential solar installations have have been growing, but it sounds like there may be more opportunity to improve those incentive structures, especially for folks who are maybe more in that lower to moderate income space where you know a nice tax credit 
doesn't really matter if you don't have the tax appetite in the first yeah. place. Yeah, I, I think in the early days, it's about making it accessible to everybody. And if that's with the provision of low interest loans or some other type of mechanism, to get the capital cost of this down. Because at the end of the day, you can think, well, do I pay off a loan on a solar system or do I keep paying to my utility? You know, at the end of paying off, it might take you, say, eight years to pay off the solar system on your house. But at the end of the eight years, you've got a system that's probably good for another couple of decades of operation, assuming you bought quality gear. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely another benefit to all this aside from decarbonizing. And that is for those folks that are more on the lower income side of things and where energy makes up a bigger chunk of their day-to-day costs having the right solar incentives in place could really make them more financially independent in the long run. I know in the US, there's sort of a patchwork of incentives and some states have probably already got this dial, but at a macro level, it is really important to make sure there's either access to capital at low interest rates or, you know, incentives that bring the cost down enough that, you know, these folks who maybe don't have the money, but could really benefit from rooftop solar are are able to. Yeah. And that... (laughs) It goes to renters as well. Like it's, it's tough. There's a you know there's a lot of people renting that or you know who, who are mobile. They could maybe even afford to install solar, but th- there's not the mechanism right now in most jurisdictions to allow them um, to to go and put solar on these rental properties. And it helps keep a renter because it keeps their cost down, and they love that, right? Yeah, I guess yeah, it's it's green and they can feel better about it that way and it and it saves costs. I mean, it sounds like if back in the day I would have had PV panels when Todd was, you know, renting a room that that would have translated into more beer money and, you know, him staying longer. I mean, it, it would have made a, a sea change difference. In those days that would have been really important. <laughs> now we're at the age it's hard to get somebody to come over and drink beer. <laughs> even if you give it away. all right so thomas is you know we clearly showed that there's real opportunity still in the u.s and obviously exciting to see that the you know growth curves in terms of both residential and and uh utility scale solar are headed up are there regions or you know kind of jurisdictions that have done a good job uh you know australia included of of integrating rooftop solar and and you know why have they been successful yeah, I, look, I think those that got out um, ahead of the game, such as you know, Germany, Japan, the UK, Australia, have d- definitely made a lot of ground. Um, why, why were they successful? Well, in Germany's case, they, they wanted to create Germany as a, as a hub for the manufacturing of solar panels. So they did have some pretty crazy incentives there in the early days. A lot of these incentives in many of these regions have started to roll back as the price of panels has got uh, cheaper. But I think in these regions where we have this high rate of penetration um, and we're starting to see the, the price on the grid go negative in the middle of the day, we've just got to watch that we don't end up clipping that renewable energy because we really need every ounce of renewable energy we can get at the moment because we still, you know, as an as a globe, we have a very carbon intensive grid. So even though we're not making that power at the right time of day, instead of worrying about clipping it, we need to be creating those same incentives that we created for solar back, you know, 10, 15 years ago for battery storage. And battery storage has come a long way and it's got to the point now where 
it is a feasible proposition to go and put in battery storage in you know, these regions where we have too much solar in the middle of the day. But I would, I'd be very disappointed to see us start clipping it or as proposed by the state of California, basically start taxing solar. Let's go and spend that you know, money instead and time and effort on creating the storage solutions that we require so we can utilize every ounce of this renewable energy. Yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's in line with a number of the discussions we've had on other episodes, right? The fact that we know that we're going to have variable power generation with solar and with wind, and let's just accept that. And we know that the price of both those technologies has come down because of incentives. So let's let's subsidize the thing that is the answer to integrating these, you know, variable sources, which is storage. So yeah, I mean, I guess you're preaching to the choir for me, but certainly getting these utilities to think outside the box and and on the legislative side, making sure there's the incentives instead of curtailing because we want to be shutting off fossil fuel plants. And so the last thing we want to do is, you know, have disincentives or be curtailing the amount of renewable energy that we're, we're putting on the grid. So now that I got all fired up about, uh, you know, utilities needing to adapt and um, the fact that, you know, we should be subsidizing storage, no longer fossil fuels. Let's move to, you know, the question we always ask, which is, you know, what can each of us do individually? And I think for this week, the first thing we want to ask folks to do here in, here in the U.S. is to go check out what, you know, the potential cost for solar would be in your area um, via Energy Sage. And we'll have the link um, to their website in our show notes. I think the second opportunity uh which you know, I know feels like a broken record, is for us to call on the U.S. Senate to pass the climate provisions of, of Build Back Better. Uh, we know things got stalled around the holidays with when our friend Mr. Manchin gave us coal in our stocking by telling us that you know, he wasn't going to back the bill. But hey, it's, it's a new year, and if we can scale things back and get these climate provisions across the, the finish line, it could have a huge impact and you know solar is one of those places i mean the solar energy industries association projects that you know solar deployment could increase you know 30% over the next 5 years if we can get that passed so definitely worth all of us to to make a call to um, to our senators to help push for that and and we'll have you know we'll have talking points on our website as well so i think we've uh We've covered solar in decent detail. I'm, pr- I'm sure there's things we've missed and questions that are unanswered. So as always, ping us on our website if you have any. And Thomas has agreed to, to provide individual responses to anyone who asks questions. So <laughs> we'll have him standing by. But yeah, thanks for you know tuning into this week's discussion. Uh, come back and join us next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. That's climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.